This is WGRE 91.5 FM, Greencastle, Indiana. Good evening and welcome to Music for Life, music from DePaul. In this episode, Burke Stanton talks to first-year music major Jacqueline Robertson about the Shostakovich Symphony the orchestra recently performed. 21CM director Mark Rabideau interviews classical musician author Sarah Robinson about her new book, Clubbing for Classical Musicians, a must-read for any up-and-coming musician. We present some terrific performances from this past week, and I sit down with three members of Dakota, this year's Ensemble in Residence, for a lively conversation about their innovative performances and collaborations in the changing world of classical music. There are lots of exciting things going on in the DePaul School of Music, and we're glad you could join us for Music for Life. This is Burke Stanton, and I'm here today with Jacqueline Robertson, violist from the DePaul University Orchestra, and we're going to be discussing the University Orchestra's performance of Dmitry Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony. Jacqueline, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So I'm wondering what your familiarity with this piece was before we played it. Was it something that you had played before, something that you had always enjoyed I had always wanted to play the uh, symphony after I heard it at Allstate from the upper group when I was younger. I had only played the second movement before and it was one of my favorites, so I'd never really gotten the chance to explore the other movements. And as soon as I discovered that we would be playing that, I got really excited and coming here and playing that was a great experience and it was a lot of fun. Glad we got to do that. Yeah, I also had a similar experience in that I had gotten a great opportunity to hear the symphony performed as part of a winter term trip that I took through DePauw with Professor Edberg. We went to New York City and listened to it performed at Carnegie Hall, which was certainly amazing, but the experience of actually playing the symphony and really digging into what it means and what the composer is doing with the music was an extremely powerful experience for me. Going through and playing the music and looking at how Shostakovich is using the symbolism to depict the struggle of the people against the oppression of Stalin's regime. Did you have any experiences in playing the music particularly that you could speak about? Definitely. I played with the University of Louisville's orchestra with the second movement and when we played it, Miss Kim Sheree Lloyd, who is the conductor, was always stopping us and telling us about different parts of the music where this is where Shostakovich is like putting subtle moments in there that Stalin wouldn't really know was kind of rebelling. Um, but the musicians would know and the people would know and they would hear it and they would, you know, really get emotional about it. And it was it was really kind of life changing at that point, because that's when I realized that music could be used to tell a story and to really represent people in a way that words could not. And so that was what fascinated me. And as soon as we got into the fourth movement and even the first movement, as soon as you listen to it, you can just hear Shostakovich and you can hear the military sounds from it and him kind of making fun of them in a mocking way. And that's really extraordinary. You can hear the hope of the people in the third movement and in the fourth movement. It's really incredible. Yeah, I know one spot, particularly in the fourth movement, after you have the military introduction, the bass section has a challenging passage where you have to play along a slew of notes on one bow and one phrase group. And after hearing Professor Smith talk about it, I had this idea of it was the struggle of like the people and how 
they can't quite articulate the pain that they're going through. But it builds and it builds to the point where you have this heroic ending and you have this transmission of their struggle out to the world through the telegraph sounds and the final movement. And I think it was a really powerful performance, powerful experience. Oh, yeah, definitely. And especially when you think about the ending to that, it's it's not necessarily an ending and the people are all happy and they get to go to their homes and their families and It's more of a hopeful thing. It's suggesting that eventually they will conquer this horrible regime. And it's very interesting because by suggesting it, he gives the people hope that it will happen. Dmitry Shostakovich did have a really awful life during the time of Stalin's reign. And his family members would be taken and killed. And he was not in good favor with them whatsoever. So the fact that he even wrote the symphony at all when he was under such pressure was really incredible and it got great reviews surprisingly from the regime and from the different officers which was really amazing and they had no idea really what it represented it was crazy i certainly would agree well jacqueline thank you for coming and talking to me today all right well thank you for having me and now let's turn to the depaul university orchestra's performance of the fourth movement of dmitry shostakovich's fifth symphony on September 20th, 2015 in Kresge Auditorium.
Hello, music lovers. This is Hannah Goth here with the events calendar. Now, since fall break is coming up, this events calendar is going to cover all the way from October 12th up until November 1st. On Tuesday, October 13th at 7.30, there will be a horn studio recital in Thompson Recital Hall. On Wednesday, October 14th, at Art Music at Almost Home at 6 o'clock, Matt Skiba will be playing. And at 7.30 that same day, October 14th, at 7.30 in Thompson Recital Hall, there will be the DePaul Chamber Players Concert. And we'll have Nicole Brockman back for that, so that's sure to be a really fantastic concert. And on Thursday, October 22nd, the Putnam County Honor Band will be playing in Kresge Auditorium at 7 o'clock. After fall break, when we get back, on Tuesday, October 27th at 7.30 p.m., there will be the Faculty Select Series of the Faculty Woodwinds Concert, and that is going to be in Thompson Recital Hall at 7.30. On Wednesday, October 28th at 6 o'clock, Art Music at Almost Home. I actually don't know who's playing at that concert. And then Sunday, November 1st, will be the beginning of the Arts Fest. And this year's theme is Art and Transformation. The kickoff to that will be the DePaul University Orchestra at 3 o'clock p.m. in Kresge Auditorium. And that's the events calendar for the next three weeks. Thank you very much. Have a great fall break. I'm Mark Rabideau, director of the 21st Century Musician Initiative at DePaul University. Each month on 21cm.org, we invite an author who is an innovative musician, thinker, or entrepreneur. Together, we read their book, and then you send us your questions for our author to answer. Today's guest is Sarah Robinson. Sarah has served as co-director of Classical Revolution LA since its inception in 2011. Her book, Clubbing for Classical Musicians, is a comprehensive and easy-to-use guide for successful alternative venue performances. Now, let's go to our interview. Sarah, well, I want to go to our very first question from uh, a reader. This person posted at 21cm.org, and it's Rick. He's a professional musician from Detroit, Michigan, and he asks uh, if you talk a little bit about your findings when seeking the balance between classical music, mashups, dances, and songs. What does success look like? Well, I think that we're not limited by style. The whole idea of putting classical in popular music spaces is that that music can stand up in those spaces. Um, I think the thing that uh, classical musicians really underestimate is how much energy you need, how much higher the energy needs to be in these spaces, um, how much closer the audience connection, and how carefully you have to plan your show to make sure that the energy doesn't drop throughout it. Um, so I've seen just about every kind of music in a bar, and I've seen uh, it succeed. You know, I, we had a Russian cellist come in and play classical Russian music with so much commitment and so much energy, and it really worked. 
choosing great pieces, but I love mashups as well. I think it's really interesting to combine, you know, dubstep and classical or whatever, the different kinds of music you're into. But I think the main thing is really just about really upping the energy and the planning so you have a great show. And when you plan your show, do you veer left or veer right based on the kind of response that you're getting from the audience? I mean, I think many ensembles that are typically playing in a club really have that intimate connection with the audience. Where are they? Am I losing them to another drink at the bar or are they right there with us? Yeah, I mean, I think as Helix Collective, we always try to plan our shows so that they're flexible, so that we don't have to go through a set you know, one piece after another, after another, that we always have sort of a band leader that can choose a different piece, decide to do the intro a different way. Um, so, so we have planning, but it's flexible. Yeah. And you know, what I find fascinating about this is, and you've traveled quite a lot as a performer. One of the things that we see is when we leave the United States, I spent a fair amount of time in Brazil myself, and one program might be trombone quartet music. The next program is Latino, Latina dance music, you know, in many cultures, putting those genres side by side is not a surprise. I imagine you found in clubs, it often does surprise the audience. Is that true? In some ways, I think people are pretty used to styles being put next to each other from the way they consume music online and their own sort of personal collections. So I think even if you go into a punk club, as long as you have the energy and the volume right, you can play, you know, almost any style. Yeah, that's so great stuff. I want to go to our next question. This is from Julie, who's an undergraduate music major at DePaul University. And she asks, how might the programming of a show change as musicians move from a sitting to a standing room only venue? So standing room only venues are usually rock clubs or dance clubs. And I think the primary difference between that and either a concert hall or a cabaret or a jazz club is the volume of the music. It's going to be much higher. People expect it to be a certain loudness to feel immersed. Um, so I think you want to accommodate that for the acoustic of the space to have it loud enough, but also the culture of the space, how people are expecting the music to be loud. So obviously don't hit your damage level, but you know as loud as you comfortably can. And then the other thing is at rock venues, people are very used to having a three-minute song, short introduction, three-minute song. That's the way things always go in those spaces. So I think it's a good idea to try to imitate that and choose pieces that are three to five minutes long and keep your introduction short. Or if you go outside of that expectation, you have to be aware that you're defying it. And so really set up, if you're going to play a 10 or 15 minute piece to set up people to hear, you know, they're going to hear something really epic and maybe consider some visual element like video or dance um, just to accommodate the fact that people will expect the music to end after three minutes and how to deal with that defying that expectation. Right. And for those listeners who aren't in the studio and see that Sarah is a young musician and, and it's, you know, probably been out there a little bit for those of us in our fifties, I imagine we'd have to do a fair amount of research, exactly what a club feels like before we'd go ahead and venture to play there. I, I'm sure I've not been in a dance club in at least a couple decades now. Right. Yeah. I mean, I always suggest that people go to any venue, go to a number of shows at any venue you're considering, because um, everyone will have a different feel to it. And you should, if you can, if it's in your hometown, you should um, know what the, what the music is like there. Yeah, that sounds great. Our next question is from Diego, a doctoral student from Michigan. 
And Diego wants to know, what was the thought process in selecting a dissertation topic that both had meaning and book potential, yet so little research surrounding your thesis? So this seems to be a real challenge for young scholars is to find something that they really want to dig into and it can have legs and move on to the next publication phase, but also where there's a real sense of you're living this research. Right. Yeah. I mean, the fact that there was little research on it was the appeal to me. I thought of doing a dissertation the way you might think of it in math or science, that you're supposed to go out and figure something out that's completely new, that has never been researched before. So I wanted to, you know, find something that there was little research on. And then I was also working in clubs and we've been doing it as an ensemble for a year or two. And our ensemble was changing as a result of that. So it's an intersection of what I wanted to research and also what I was living as a musician. And then finally, I wanted to make something helpful, something that people would want to read. And um, the book was really an outcropping of that, just that I had all this helpful information and I wanted to put it in a more digestible, easy to use form. Yeah. And I think, you know, vastly our readers over the last month have really shared that enthusiasm that we need to find new models. And I love the exploratory nature of what you've approached. And I love the fact that it is deeply researched, but also, as I said, you're out and you're doing field study as we go and thriving in your own performance practice. And I, I think that really gives a lot of credibility, although not everybody's a believer. And actually, point of fact, this very next question comes from Joan, a faculty member from North Carolina, who says she worries about the future of her students, but wants to preserve the art form as well. Her question is, how far is too far? I love this question, but my answer would be that I don't think there are limits in art. I don't think there are limits in music as to what we can do. Um, I believe we're engaged in a living art form. So I think you're perfectly within your rights to take your classical training, your mastery of your instrument, and you can try anything you want. You can go anywhere. Um, and I, I don't think there should be limits on where we can go as artists in, in our expression. As long as you're not hurting anyone, you're not breaking laws if you don't want to go to jail, but within reasonable limits. I think we're allowed, I don't think there are rules in art. Um, but if you want to make money at it, if you want to make a living, you do have to be responsive to your audience. Um, you have to figure out what people are willing to help you pay for, what they'll show up and pay tickets for. So you have to listen to them what they'll come back for, what they hated. But beyond that, I really think we can try anything. Yeah. You know, it's not a question from our listener, but it really begs the question, I think, here in this dialogue is, tell me about a time where this just did not work. I mean, I, I read the book and there's so many positive examples, not only of your own performance, but of colleagues and friends. And certainly you've been involved in a number of movements that have had some very positive and I think impactful moments in the classical music scene, but there must have been some epic failures along the way. What's your greatest epic failure? Um, you know, there's a lot. I mean, when you're developing a program, every, every show, there's something that doesn't work. I think one of the worst was we were booked at a coffee shop and we were working with a presenter and they, you know, people didn't come. So we played for who was there and it was really like, shut up, I'm trying to work. Um, so that's always, that's always awful. You have to plan for that. And there was one space where we decided to give everyone in the audience like little percussion instruments. And we didn't realize that the acoustic was just really live and they drowned us out with like a drum set and an amp. Right. <laughs> so we could hear ourselves at all. So, I mean, things go wrong all the time. It's a, it's a matter of experimentation. 
I would imagine some of the most meaningful lessons come out of some of those missteps, that you have an opportunity to learn what does work, what doesn't work, and to hone those listening skills. Exactly. I know when I was researching my dissertation, a lot of people said that they liked to develop programs in clubs because they had the immediate feedback of knowing what works and what doesn't, and they didn't have to pay a lot of money to play in that venue. So it's it's a great opportunity to figure out what works. Very good. Well, I have one last question from one of your readers. It's a graduate student from Massachusetts who wants to know where to begin. They go on to describe in detail, they've never imagined themselves engaging with patrons in this way. You know, and, and it's point of fact that, that that makes perfect sense. That's not what we've trained people to do in the academy. We've really, you know, put them on concert hall stages and ensured the fact that we'll bring in at least as many audience members as there are on stage, or at least that's the benchmark we too often use. So where would you tell a young musician who really wants to believe that there is a more meaningful or, or at least additional ways to engage with audiences, where would you tell them to begin? I think you have to start as an artist from a really authentic place about what you think would be amazing to produce. What would just knock your socks off, just the coolest thing you've ever done? What are you really into? Beyond your training, what would you just love to see that you haven't really seen before? And I think after you find that, because like anything in music, it's really, really hard. So you have to believe in it before you start. And once you find that, then you can figure out, oh, where can I do this? Or what audience might be into this? And how do I contact them? But I think the business part of it comes after you've come up with something that is really unique to you that you feel you have to give because you're the only person with your soul and exactly what you have to say. So I think you have to start with an artistic product you really believe in. Sarah, what a great way to wrap up our interview. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for your well-researched, thoughtful, and beautifully written book. We've loved having you as our inaugural Connect 21 book club author. And thanks so much for all of your great work in the field. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be a little part of this and good luck with everything you're doing in the future. Thanks so much. From their performance of October 7th, The DePaul Jazz Ensemble, led by Steve Snyder, performs Frank Foster's 456.
Today on Music for Life, I'm joined by Dakota, a New York City-based chamber ensemble comprised of virtuoso musicians, entrepreneurs, and passionate advocates of the arts. The artists of Dakota first collaborated with one another in the renowned ensemble ACJW Fellowship Program, created in partnership with the Juilliard School, Carnegie Hall, and the Weill Music Institute, and continues now as the first ever affiliate ensemble of Carnegie Hall. Since its inception in 2011, Dakota's projects have reached audiences in schools, hospitals, homeless shelters and prisons, as well as in prominent concert halls from Abu Dhabi to Iceland, Hong Kong to Denmark, and in every major city across the United States. Bathed in critical acclaim for their artistry and commitment to delivering profoundly impactful programming, Time Out New York pronounces Dakota a new collective of some of the brightest young classical musicians in the world. Describing Dakota's impact on those at the margins of our society during a recent residency at a maximum security prison, the Washington Post says, if you doubt that within every person resides a divine spark, listening to prisoners express their joys and sorrows, ever luminous even in this dark place, may cause you to reconsider. Please join me in welcoming Dakota with members Anna Elishvili, Caitlin Sullivan, and Nate Schramm. Welcome, folks. Hi. Thank you. How are you doing? Great to have you here. Glad you've joined us today. I want to start with this phrase, first ever affiliate ensemble of Carnegie Hall. Tell me, how did your relationship with Carnegie come about, and what did they recognize within Dakota that led to this relationship? Oh, well, well all of us were part of ensemble ACJW, which mm-hmm. is, stands for the Academy Carnegie Hall, the Juilliard School, mm-hmm. and the Wild Music Institute. And this mm-hmm. is a program that's a two-year fellowship and it brings musicians together to collaborate in doing chamber music concerts and teach in New York City public schools. And it's sort of a merging of teaching and performing. That's kind of what we were all trained for. We all met there. And Dakota is an alumni ensemble out of that. So we were actually all different years. I was in the very first year. Caitlin? Was... I was in the second year. I think we decided I was in the fourth year. Yeah, that's right. You lose track after a while. But we all met through that program, and then you know we wanted to continue the mission. So does every graduate of the program automatically become a member of Dakota? No, that's a great no, question. Okay, yeah, but it is open to uh-huh. the graduates from that fellowship. And for a while, we had an opt-in process, and now we're sort of revamping to get the right instrumentation in and all that sort of thing. But basically, it's kind of a... You have to show your initiative. Yeah, your entrepreneurial chops. That's right, yes, yeah. your entrepreneurial chops. Nice, we'll use that one. <laughs> That'll now be on the application form from the, henceforth. So Dakota is like a collective, and it's funny. Several of my friends have heard you perform, and they all describe you as something different because they've heard different members of Dakota. And they're like, no, that's not who's in Dakota. No, I'll tell you who's in Dakota. How many total members? 28 right now. Right? Yes, 28. That's right. Do you ever play together? We have not all played together at the same time yet. But we're working on that. It could be a very first for DePaul University. Well, there you go. <laughs> Let's make that happen. That'd be great. I, uh, when I was in grad school, I played in a group called the Clan Eclectic, and the only time they ever all played together was for our parties, you know, because you could never find anything that would use all those instruments. Right. We're also going to be using that name also. <laughs> <laughs> so I recently read an article about Dakota conducting a guerrilla-style street performance and interactive music-making session. Now, that doesn't sound like classical music in its traditional form, so can someone explain to me what that was? I'm not exactly sure where that's from, but I can tell you other times that we've done stuff like this, sometimes at universities, in fact, to try to get as many people 
to know about a concert coming up, we'll just go out into the streets and just start playing something. We'll start, um, I've done it before, we're in a building like this one, and we'll start walking around the hallways, improvising, and, and if there might be five of us walking around, we might run into each other and start playing together, and, and people will start asking us what we're up to, and we say we're classical musicians, we're playing a concert, and it's going to be fun. That's terrific. And, you know, there's so many great YouTubes of people attempting this kind of thing, and we've done a good bit of it here as well. I always love it when people find beauty in unlikely places and Mm -hmm. they hear music in a space they wouldn't ordinarily expect it. So Mark Rabideau, our 21st Century Musicianship Director, likes to conduct surveys. He sent out an email asking for a word or two that best describes Dakota. Ooh, sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? Here were the answers. Number one, who? Agile. (laughs) Number two, flexible. And number three, profound. So those are the top three words that came out. And as I followed your career, so it seems to capture a lot of your work, agile and flexible in instrumentation, as well as your performance venues and the repertoire and all the musical styles and influences. So share with our listeners a little bit of some of the history of how you arrived at this music scene where you can be described by different people as different ensembles and sometimes there's two of you and sometimes there's 23 of you and how did we get here? That's a great question. Actually, I think all of us probably came here sort of for different reasons, but all sort of searching for something, something that's different than what you know was going on around and something that was different from even our conservatory experience. And uh, so I guess I would say for me personally, I love the inspiration I get from all of the Dakota members because everybody comes in with their different talents and expertises and they are really different and I've learned so much from my colleagues. And so now I, you know, what I was already, you know, I was kind of dabbling in composition before and other things and dancing, whatever. Now all these things are sort of coming together because other people are bringing in their expertise and we work together and learn from each other. So that's one of my favorite things about Dakota. That's great. It's like new blood all the time. Yeah, and I... I want to add to that that I like that word that you were just using to describe us or a word that's been used and that's profound and I think that um, one of our goals is just to have listeners have a profound experience when they're listening to mm-hmm. music mm-hmm. and we're trying to go at that question from many many different angles so we're trying to kind of decode what music is and what it could mean to different people so that's sort of what we are always grappling with and trying to convey in our performances. So decoda, is that tied to decoding? Yeah. Is, it is. Oh, yeah. So you are the folks that are doing the decoding. This is kind of like... Yeah, we decode the music. So, uh-huh. And sometimes in our interactive performances, that's kind of what we really try to do is find a way to sort of like make people feel like they're familiar with the material so that when they hear it, they have a more profound experience, um, a more complete yeah. That's great. So you're in residency here at DePauw, and on your first visit, you are doing interactive performances. Now, here with our 21st Century Musician Initiative, we're all about this kind of thing. But for a lot of classical musicians, they're going to say, what's an interactive performance? What's an interactive performance, Nate? Well, uh, it's pretty much exactly what you just said. It's a performance where we interact with the audience, and it can be a a really wide range of of possibilities. Uh, Yesterday we did it for uh, about 57th graders, and it became kind of a kid's concert, but in a way it was was us sharing this music we love with with kids in a way that will get them excited about it and ready to hear more of it and and hopefully start having these profound experiences with Mm -hmm. music. Um, 
But we've done these kinds of interactive performances also with incarcerated men and women in, in incarceration uh, facilities. We've done it at hospitals, like you said, all these places before. Uh, so it's not just limited to, to the youth or anything like that. And the, the idea behind it is we create activities or we create questions or prompts that bring the audience into what the composer was trying to make you feel. And mm-hmm. um, that usually starts with, with us talking about something that we're really excited about. For me, the goal with every interactive performance is to get back to that experience I had uh, oftentimes in college when a friend said, man, I want you to hear this piece. It's so amazing. (laughs) And it's just, you won't believe what he does and it's just going to blow your mind. You say, well, yeah, let's listen to it. And it's that kind of infectious enthusiasm Mm -hmm. that makes you hear that piece with a a really different kind of lens that makes you prepared to just be washed in great artistry. And that's exactly what the interactive performance is trying to do. And I love that. You know, long-time listeners to the show know that I'm battling the stereotype of classical music as being this thing where we get dressed up in black and white and we walk into a sacred hall and we hear music in a language we don't understand, written by dead white Germans, and we try to guess when to (laughs) applaud. And most people think this is kind of classical music today. And this is not that at all. That's not what classical music is at all. And and we actually are where you live. You know, you just don't recognize that. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we really have to take ourselves out right to where you live, which you guys do with prisons and public schools and, and all kinds of great opportunities like that. And I imagine you're seeing a pretty significant impact in the lives of these people. Because you play in some interesting audiences. I mean, playing for a room full of seventh graders, that's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. But actually, we've been around at this point long enough to where we're starting to see some of these people come back five years later, you know, two years later and say, hey, I, uh, you know, I, I remember this performance you gave and it blew my mind and I just want to let you know that we're... You know, now I'm going in to study music at a conservatory, and it's because of you guys. And it's, yeah. that's, a, that's a really special thing. So it, it is true. We're seeing. And we also have received some letters at Carnegie Hall from yeah. many of the inmates at Lee Correctional uh, Institution. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing to get these letters that are sent to Carnegie Hall and these messages from, from mm-hmm. these guys that we were working with. They're transformed, and we are transformed. It's mm-hmm. really uh, inspirational. You know, that ties into my next question, because what I was going to ask is, so this is residency one, what do we expect in residency two? I know that uh, tonight's going to be an exciting night with music on the square and storytellers, and that's one of my favorite things that that the students here do, and you guys are going to have a great time. I I can assure you that's going to be fun. (laughs) But we actually uh, have a relationship with the women's prison here, and we've Mm. had students perform there, and we have faculty members who go there as well, so maybe we'll have to get you guys to Mm. perform, because that is a really profound experience playing for people who truly are the captive audience in that case but are just totally taken by this music mm-hmm. so what might me what might we expect for visit two and three what else do you have up your sleeves well uh for visit two i'm coming back with evan primo who is our bassist one of our bassists we have three actually and he is working on a project called Beethoven and banjos. And so we're going to be bringing that here um, with a group called Red Tail Ring, and they're sort of the folk side of this. So this is more of a visit to is going to be about collaboration and sort of crossover. You know, it's mentioned that it's interesting that you mentioned that because we hosted the Silk Road Ensemble and the first Global Musician Workshop here this summer. Jamie Stone, the banjoist with uh, Silk Road, came back last week and um, played a recital, but then we did a little jam session at Music on the Square. Mm-hmm. and 
banjos and dobros and guitars and fiddles and everything. I mean, that is music at its at its most potent. I mean, that's right there where it lives. So we're really looking forward to that one. What else do you have? So the third visit, uh, we're bringing a larger ensemble. It's the instrumentation of Stravinsky's Histoire du Soldat. So that's seven people coming. And uh, this is going to be more of a performance-based one, but one of the things that we're working on is interactive performances with the students. So we're actually going to put together three student groups plus us to do sort of an hour-long uh, interactive performance where each of them get like 15 minutes wow. um, to present their own interactive performance at an elementary or middle school in the area. And so that's kind of our culminating work that we're going to be doing with the students. And the program, I think, is going to be really fun, too, because it's going to have some jazz in it and some, you know, obviously some Stravinsky and possibly some tangos and stuff like that. Oh, so it'll cool. be quite, quite fun. That's great. So that. I want to close with this question for each of you. I ask each of you to answer this question. Um, you know, one of the things that we talk about in 21CM is the fact that the musical world has changed dramatically and, and the, the, the era of the single employer is pretty much over. You know, you're, you're statistically more likely to be struck by lightning than the land of full-time orchestra job. So, um, but, you know, the funny thing is that as I talk to more and more 21st century musicians about this, they talk about how rich and full their lives are in a way that they wouldn't be if they were just constantly sitting in the same chair playing the same literature. So what has Dakota brought to your career that you find so fulfilling and captivating? For me, it's a lot of it's what you're, you're talking about, a really diverse career where I get to do so many different things. Um, but probably the most important are, are some of the greatest colleagues I've ever worked with in my life. I mean, people that don't stop challenging me in the most positive mm -hmm. ways. They say, I have Dakota colleagues that say, you know what, you need to write a piece right now. And it's, uh, I say, well, I don't really write music. And now I do right, because right. of these people and, and like Caitlin and Anna who are constantly helping me figure out new ways to delve into music that, that I've played before and I thought I had figured out and I'm <laughs> finding out more, more and more beautiful things. Mm -hmm. uh, and that I think is what makes these 21st century freelance musicians or whatever you want to call it more fulfilled because uh, that's essentially what everyone wants in their artistic life or even personal life mm -hmm. is to constantly have something to work towards right. and something to, to grow. Caitlin, what about you? Uh, I think for me, I've been able to explore uh, my ability to, to do some interesting programming. Uh, I've had two programs performed at the Met Museum in New York, and uh, I really spent a lot of time thinking about how uh, these programs could, uh, well, individual pieces in the program can really inform the next piece and, and be informed by art. And, mm. and I've never, I never thought I could do that, and maybe if I were sitting in that orchestra job, I, I certainly wouldn't have, you know, any opportunity to exercise that kind of creativity. You know, and I often felt that as an orchestral musician. It's like somebody else got to pick all the good stuff, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm here executing my part, but I didn't get to choose what happens next, and when, you know, that's what pushed me into being a conductor, which is another disease that we'll talk about some other time. <laughs> but, Anna, what about you? Well, well, kind of, yeah, what they all said for me for sure applies. I would say also I love that I've been able to play such a diverse amount of repertoire. I mean, as a violinist, I get asked to do a lot of the different concerts and I get to play with winds and strings and, you know, brass and whatever. So I really love just always feeling like the repertoire is just expanding and I'm also trying music by composers that are our age and playing in places that I would not have imagined that I would have played mm -hmm. and loving it. You know, it's an exciting new world of music out there and you guys are really on the forefront of it and we're thrilled that you can be our artists in residence this year. You've already brought a lot to our campus and we look forward to the many great things to come and thanks for coming in to chat about it today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
At this week's recital hour, Dakota members violinist Anna Elishvili, violist Nathan Schramm, and cellist Caitlin Sullivan performed the first movement, Adagio Allegro con Brio, from Ludwig van Beethoven's Opus 9, Number 1 String Trio.
We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Music for Life. We love hearing from listeners. You can contact us by emailing musicforlife at depaw.edu. We're also on Facebook at DePaw Music for Life, and you can subscribe to our show on iTunes by searching there for DePaw Music for Life. Our student producers are Hannah Gauthier, Burke Stanton, Rachel Amalfitano, and Matt Skiba. Veronica Pedrel is our online editor, and our show is produced by Matthew Champagne in the Judson and Joyce Green Center for the Performing Arts at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana. I'm Mark McCoy, Dean of the School of Music. Thank you for listening to our show. Keep music in your life, and have a great week. It's music for life.